0: Before we get started on this week's episode of Little Gold Men, uh, I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hi, Richard.
1: Hello. Emergency session.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But uh, minutes after we finished recording this week's episode, the Academy announced these huge changes to the way that the Oscars are going to work, both in this coming year and then in the future. Uh, So Richard and I reconvened to talk about this. Um, I'm just going to read what's in the tweet, which is as far as I can tell most of the information that we have. Um, There's going to be a new Oscar category designed around achievement in popular film. We don't know what that means beyond that. Um, starting in 2020, they will the Oscars will air a little bit earlier. It'll be February 9th, whereas they've usually been at the end of February or sometimes early March. Uh, and then they are planning a, quote, more globally accessible three-hour telecast, which, according to other reports, will involve them giving out some awards during commercial breaks uh, and then airing them later on in an edited format something. It's all a little bit vague. Um, Richard, what was your initial reaction to this news?
1: Well, multifaceted. I hated when the Tonys did it and I, it, in terms of um, not airing certain categories, so technical categories. Like, these are people who work very hard, and they, this is, they're, they're asking for one moment, you know, sort of in the spotlight. And the Academy now seems to be following the American Theatre Wing and denying them that moment, you know, even if they show it later. And I think that's a shame. Obviously, we, we'll get into the new category thing, which has potential for ruin. And, you know, and I have some theories about why they're doing it this year. But I think for our purposes, like, I'm really curious to see what shortening the season is going to look like. Yeah. And what kind of almost economic effect that has, what sort of, like, in terms of momentum. Because I find, you know, we we covered this pretty exhaustively, but so maybe it's just my experience. But I find that, you know, it's a long wait. Like, there's kind of a, a desert between Golden Globes and the end of February for the Oscars. So maybe it'll kind of make the award season feel, and the Oscars themselves feel that much more exciting.
0: Yeah, I think they definitely have gotten a sense that their momentum gets stolen by the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, the Critics' Choice Awards, the BAFTAs, which a lot of which happen in mid-February. And I mean, for us, you know, we're not having to dress up and go to all these things, but we're following it and we're all kind of exhausted by the time the Oscars roll around. So I see the argument for that. And I think... A lot of people have said a shorter season would serve them better in the future. The main downside I can see for this is for smaller movies that get nominated, like they, you know, they send out the screeners by the time of Christmas break, uh, voters have time to catch up on what they want to nominate. Assuming they're not going to move up the nominations date beyond much early January, that leaves them only a month to kind of catch up on what got nominated. So say that you haven't seen more which gets a surprise best picture nomination, then you've got the screener. Uh, are, are, do you think voters are going to have time to catch up on all this stuff the way they might have?
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I think the- that it certainly adds a sense of urgency um, to the proceedings when you know and even you know um, two weeks makes a big deal and last year it was even longer Uh, it aired in March because of the Olympics you know maybe that sense of urgency will enliven everything but maybe like you said it will mean that that much more doesn't get its kind of due consideration because there just isn't time yeah and I think that would be a real loss that would dovetail kind of grossly with this idea of, of introducing a popular film category.
0: Okay, yeah. I guess that's what we should spend most of our time talking about because that, that's like the vaguest announcement because we don't know what that category is going to be, but it also just feels so big. It's a huge change for them to introduce a new Oscar category. Like, I'm not even sure when the last time that happened was, but it happens really rarely.
1: Yeah, it was 2001 with Animated Feature.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I was not long before that, they split the score into comedy and drama scores. Uh, I don't know if we're going to count that one. So, Richard, I imagine you were alluding earlier uh, why it's happening this year. This feels like the Black Panther category. Like, this is where you take a popular movie that is really well-liked, but you're worried won't get nominated and make room for it.
1: Yeah, and I think that the worry over it not getting nominated is like, well, then address that within the institution. I know that they are trying to do that, like, you know, with new uh, membership initiatives and whatnot, but like... Out of fear that Black Panther, one of the most popular both box office and critically an audience, you know, favor like films of the year, will probably be the film of the year in a lot of ways. Like if that doesn't get nominated for Best Picture because the voters in your in your voting body don't like I mean, it just seems weird to then create this, sub, this other thing so it can get nominated. I mean, it deserves to be in Best Picture. We've been talking on this podcast for weeks, if not months about it, it being the one thing that's come out so far this year that feels like anointed as a Best Picture nominee. Um, and to not have faith in your institution to recognize that, well, I mean, that seems like more of a problem of the institution rather than kind of almost minimizing the achievement of both you know, categories by separating them.
0: Yeah, and like to use the term like ghetto-wise, especially when talking about Black Panther is really loaded, but it it really does feel more loaded with something like this. Like if it had been the year of Jurassic World or something like that, it would almost feel less potentially backlash-inducing than if you're like, all right, we're going to create a special category for Black Panther. It's on its own, but it's just the same. Like it's really... Bad optics if Black Panther winds up being the the recipient of this award, which you kind of have to assume it will be.
1: Yeah, and what then does the future look like? And and you know, look, they they did this ten years ago with when when The Dark Knight didn't get nominated for Best Picture, and there was all this hue and cry about that. That's when they expanded the you know the Best Picture race from a potential ten nominees. And has have we seen big blockbusters get folded into that? No, because you know of various you know long held.
0: Well, some. I mean, you, you got you got Inception in there. You got Mad Max Fury Road. Like there yeah, are things true. that you can imagine wouldn't have gotten in. That's true. Um, if it hadn't been for the ten wide field.
1: But you know, I, I, and I so I don't know like what necessarily adding this new category will change. Uh, you know, like I, I, I feel like. If they wanted to give Black Panther a special award or something like that would almost in a way be like less of a of a big deal or, or less of a sort of massively massive change. But, you know, how do you satisfy this category going, going forward? Because there's not going to be a Black Panther every year. Does that mean we're just like giving Transformers movies yeah, Oscars yeah, because exactly. they were popular? And also, what does popular mean? Are we just talking? Uh, what are the qualifications? You know?
0: Yeah, because like Moonlight was popular, it made way more money than a movie of that budget would normally make. But it's you know seen as one of the best picture winners. It's emblematic of like, oh, only tiny movies ever win best picture. But that's just changing your parameters of what popular is supposed to be.
1: Right, and and you know, look if we if if we're gonna start introducing a metric for for what qualifies as an Oscar movie by box office, like that's a problem. I can't imagine they would do that. That would be insane. But how else do you define popular movie? You know,
0: I have no idea.
1: Is it going to be audience based? You know, like the Blockbuster Awards or, or the People's Choice Awards or something, because <laughs> that feels to sort of taint the 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 whole thing itself. You know, also, so yeah, I really, I really just don't know. I'm sure we'll get more clarification about what they mean by this. I think that the the, the announcement was pretty hasty. They should have provided more details because it's given all of film Twitter now a day or however much longer to just kind of freak out. That doesn't really do good things for them.
0: Well, it, it just makes me wonder if it's a trial balloon. If they kept it vague to see how people reacted and like if the backlash will have any effect. I mean, that might be me being like, oh, my Twitter feed has the power to change the Oscars, but it it does. It is strange that they included so few details.
1: Yeah, I mean, and there is a contingent of people on, on film Twitter or whatever who are talking. About about this as maybe it's just weird wording and what's actually happening is that the long you know clamored for stunt coordination category is going to be introduced you know yeah. it's it's kind of bizarre almost that that category hasn't existed before. Um, It really should, especially the bigger and more sort of spectacle driven movies get and, you know, um, and and how much of a lion's share of the box office uh, those movies take up. Um, Recognizing stunt work, I think, is, is a really valid way, a really valid thing to do. But this wording does not make it sound like it's that it would be very easy to say, hey, by the way, we're introducing a stunt category instead of this thing about popular films.
0: It would be kind of amazing if they're like, yeah, we're going to have a stunt category so Black Panther can win that. And then people are watching this like, and the Oscar goes to the name of the stunt quarter on Black Panther and all the people who they thought were going to tune in for that are not going to tune in. Especially because that seems like an award they'd move to the commercials now, uh, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think we're both like up in arms about it. But that, that one doesn't feel like a travel in. Like, I feel like that... Is sticking because they're always obsessed with making the award show shorter. I think we both agree that like they can go on forever as far as we're concerned. But yeah, they're just so beholden to TV ratings and trying to get more people to tune into the Oscars, which just doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen.
1: Well, yeah, and here's here's the thing about the about the trying to court new viewers. Will nominating Black Panther and A Quiet Place and I don't know fucking Deadpool two will that bring in fans of those movies? No. no. Like, I don't like, I don't think they care. I think that like, we talked about this after the Oscar broadcast this year, where like, if you kind of like, and also the, to- I think actually we we're talking about after the Tonys, but like, if you kind of just like dial in to your like core fans in the way that everything is now becoming niche, you know, niche targeted advertising, all that, like just give, do kind of fan service, you know, and there are plenty of people who are Oscar fans. It's not the numbers it used to be just because there's a lot more to watch on TV. You know, back when there were three channels and one of the channels was showing, you know, a bunch of celebrities in a room together. Sure, people would tune into that, but they, know they don't have to do that. I think it's pretty like short-sighted thinking to to think that like oh if we start bringing you know the movies that people actually went to go see into this award show that those people are going to c- come watch to see if they want a prize.
0: Yeah, I mean I feel like the the ten wide best picture field has actually worked out pretty well. I, I think it was made for similar reasons, but has been a net good. But it's it's the the separate category just feels like leaning an extra step into that whole idea of bringing blockbusters um, to the result of having a category that's like the fake Oscar that we give you as your consolation prize along. With your billions of dollars.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there, there's been some fatalistic, you know, tweeting about, well, I liked, you know, I enjoyed the Oscars while they lasted and stuff. I, d- I don't think that this is necessarily an existential no. threat. There have been a lot of, as you mentioned about the you know, d- d- division of the score categories, there have been a lot of, cre- you know, weird Oscar things that have come and gone and, and then, re- you know, returned again and gone away again. And um, it's an ever evolving thing. Um, I think that the popular film category is the most like is the sexiest one to be sort of outraged about or 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 you know concerned about but i think that the the not airing certain categories thing i think is the is the is the most damaging to <sighs> um yeah. the broadcast kind of reputation i think that that's um a, that's a huge precedent shift yeah, at least from as, as far as the back as I can remember,
0: and it's a bad sign of where their priorities are. It's uh, it just it, it makes the Oscars feel less special that they aren't going to be like, no, we're just going to be as long as we're going to, and we're going to give a award to short films, and you're going to watch anyway. And
1: if I were in the if I were in the Academy in one of those trade, you know, um, crafts categories or or, or branches of the Academy rather, I would feel really devalued. And oh yeah, and and then disincentivized from participating. You know, you're not even yeah, going to air the lot thing of on TV. You know, I'm sure that it's still a thrill to vote for this stuff, but uh, I would feel pretty insulted by the Academy, you know, brass. If if yeah. I were, say, you know, a, a sound mixer who all of a sudden was probably just been told that their category won't
0: air on television. Yeah, I'll be really interested when we start hearing from those people. And I'm sure that we will. All right. I think we can uh, we can end this conversation here. We will be following all of this, obviously, and especially when we know more about what this popular film category is going to look like. But uh, it's not the end of the Oscars yet. We're going to hold out hope, even though we're uh, we're, we're not mad. We're disappointed. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here back from vacation uh, rejoining our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, Joining us once again, our Hollywood editor,
2: Hilary Busis.
0: Hello. Joining us back in studio for the first time in a while, our Hollywood writer, Johanna Desta. Hello.
2: A third Hello. Hello.
0: Hello. Hello. (laughs) like more singing on this show, the more the better. Well as if you keep inviting me, it's gonna happen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> An all musical episode. Once more with feeling style. Oh it's what God. the
0: people have been clamoring for. We have two new releases, well, one one upcoming and one new-ish to talk about this week. We're going to talk about Eighth Grade and Crazy Rich Asians. Um, but first, we wanted to get into yet more festival news. It is uh, August, and things are very slow, but all the the news about the fall festivals is coming out. And the New York Film Festival announced its lineup. Uh, it's kind of a, one of the old and very prestigious festivals, and for New Yorkers, it's always a great chance to catch up with films from Cannes and sometimes from Toronto and Venice. Um, and one of the noteworthy things I thought about this year is that there, uh, other than the Julian Schnabel movie, which has Hasn't been announced anywhere else. Uh, everything is they being at another festival. Uh, do we feel like this is a big deal, or is the kind of okay for the New York Film Festival to take this position?
1: I think it's a big deal. I mean, I looked it up when when they announced the opening night film, uh, which is the favorite, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie, uh, which will be at Venice. Before that, I looked it up, and it's been a long time. It's been, I think, since two thousand nine that. The opening night film at the New York Film Festival wasn't a world premiere. You know, you think you had Gone Girl and um, Bridge of Sp- Spies premiered there, and
0: Social Network I remember premiered there.
1: Social Network uh, there wasn't
0: was a- Wonder Wheel last year's.
3: Yeah, uh-huh.
1: so do okay. not talk about that. <laughs> okay,
2: <laughs> Hillary, please keep your voice down.
1: But it's just interesting because this was a this was a festival season. Now that I mean, we kind of figured out what's going to be all the, all the festivals that uh, there was a lot to debut because Sundance was quiet, Cannes was quiet, and to. Th- that to see that New York Film Festival didn't get a sort of significant piece of that is strange. And I wonder what's going on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, it's hard to really float a theory uh, because these conversations are all happening behind closed doors. And it's not like they have bad films. They've got a lot of stuff that we've been excited about, like The Favorite you mentioned, the Alfonso Cuarón movie, Roma, uh, The Coens with Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, Barry Jenkins, If You'll Shriek It Talk, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so it's a good lineup as usual, but it is that kind of like star power doesn't seem to be there, which is strange.
1: Yeah, and I think that one thing in the lineup that I saw that interests me, it's been around since Sundance, is Wildlife, Paul Dano's movie. And its presence there and the other festivals this fall, like, kind of tell they're really going to push that one. I think that probably Carrie Mulligan, who I think is the lead of it, I still haven't seen it. I keep missing it at festivals, but it was at Cannes as well as Sundance. Like, I think that that that, that tells me that that movie is going to get the sort of awardsy push that it wasn't clear uh that it would uh back at sundance so if, if any awards movie emerged from sundance this year i think it might be that but also eighth grade which we'll talk about later
0: interesting uh anything you guys are particularly excited i assume you'll all make your way to new york film festival eventually anything you've got your sights on I can't wait
3: to see the favorite. Um, I so I finally saw eighth grade this week, and um, one of the trailers that played before it was the favorite, which is kind of a weird placement. I don't know that I would necessarily associate the audience for those two, although I guess I am interested in them both. So well done. Um, the center of the Venn diagram is just me, but yeah, I don't know who can who can say no to a bunch of like wacky period antics with just uh, there don't seem to be any men in that movie, which I fully support. <laughs> uh, so yeah favorite all the way
2: yeah i'm also looking forward to seeing the favorite and also if bill street could talk which i know we're going to talk about now but that trailer just gave me goosebumps and i'm just here for whatever barry jenkins is doing so
0: Tell us what gave you goosebumps about that trailer. Oh my which goodness. is, it's on YouTube, it was released last week, Everyone, anyone can see it.
2: I could spend the rest of the podcast talking about it. So, I mean, everything about it from just like the narration, just hearing James Baldwin over all these beautiful shots, all these beautiful black people, like I just, everything about it, I'm so, so excited for.
1: I mean, anytime a director... Moonlight was not his first film, but, like, it was certainly the film that put him on the map in a big way. And anytime someone has a splashy thing like that, you worry about the follow-up. It's like, okay, can he recreate it? Is it lightning in a bottle? And, you know, a trailer's just a trailer, but, like, the look of it, the feel of it, even just the kind of, the physics of it, like, the momentum of the shots that we see and, like, just, like, this kind of elaborate camera work, like, it just seems really exciting, but also, I mean, again, it's just a a two-and-a-half-minute trailer, like, doesn't seem to lose... A sort of core humanity, which I think Moonlight did that balance really well, too. Like, it's super stylish, but it has a human story at its center in in, a real way. I'm
2: also excited about the cast that's in it, like Kiki Lane, who I'm not super familiar with, and Stephen James, who's been doing lots of things here and there. They're just like, they just have real star quality. So I'm excited to see both of them in this film together carrying it. And also the supporting cast seems amazing. Regina King and Brian Tyree Henry and and everybody else who's involved.
3: Oh, Pedro Pascal and Diego Luna are in too. Mm Oh, that's exciting.
0: Ed Scrine, uh, was playing, I think, the like one of the few white characters was the cop, so excited about that. Yeah. Oh, our woke bay. Yeah, I was gonna say he's on his woke streak Oh, is right he now. one of the woke bays? I didn't, I, I, he's the one moment.
3: who gave up, uh, a role in a movie that was originally written as an Asian character, and now Daniel Day Kim is playing in that the character? Hellboy movie. Yeah, right? in, in Hellboy. Wow, all right, Ed
1: great. Yeah, and the Kiki Lane factor is, is really intriguing because she's been in a short one episode of Chicago Med an untitled Lena Waithe project from 2016 that I guess didn't get off the ground and then like nothing else really. And so this is a, a lead role in an Oscar winning director and writers follow up movie. Like, you know, I, I just think that like, that's really exciting. I love a narrative like that. It, it just adds an extra sort of occasion to the movie um, while also giving a showcase for familiar people like Regina King and, you know, whatnot so i think that 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 and then will play really it's a new york movie you know i think that 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 will find a really good audience at the new york film festival um even though it's premiering in Toronto it's right. premier Toronto right so yeah. it won't be a world Venice premier Toronto right? yeah
0: yeah I uh, I read the book someone recently for the first time and it's a it's a really short book it's it's really impressionistic it's most it's told from this girl's point of view as she's pregnant and her, uh, f- her fiance has been arrested by the cops for a crime he didn't commit uh, and so it, it's it's slim it's like a, it's emotional and when you watch this trailer you feel like you're gonna get so much more of that really put on the screen like you get the 70s setting and you get all these people looking directly in the camera and kind of like bearing their souls um um, and it's exactly kind of what I hoped Barry Jenkins would do with it, and I don't know what I thought this would be otherwise. Like I'm just, I'm just excited to see like the Andre Holland shot for Moonlight where he's smoking mm-hmm. against the wall and looks at the camera. Like every other shot in this trailer seems to be that. Uh, so I'm just I'm just excited to have Barry Jenkins back. I guess it hasn't been that long since Moonlight, but come on back, Barry.
2: I like that you mentioned the smoking shot too because there was like a smoking shot in this trailer and like kids in a bathtub and I was like oh he's giving us these callbacks to I he's, I of- he's creating out. the Barry Jenkins yeah. cinematic universe <laughs> yes.
0: I, I mean I think about that shot of Andre Holland like weekly so he's <laughs> <You've> got <laughs> so to good. stay for the post credit sequence mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> right
2: yeah
1: exactly <laughs>
0: Well, by way of transition, we were talking about Moonlight, which was a huge success for A24, which is a studio that is currently releasing 8th Grade. How about that? 8th uh, Grade is a premiered at Sundance. People have been talking about it, it feels like consistently since then. It's, it was one of the kind of breakout hits from that festival. Uh, A24 released it on July 13th. It's been kind of slowly making its way across the country. Uh, it's grossed $7 million so far, which is really pretty good for a small movie with no major stars in it. Um, and I saw it last night for the first time and I had seen people kind of say like eighth grade is truly a horror movie and didn't like really get it, but this movie is a horror movie. Like it stressed me out in a way that I didn't see Hereditary, but I feel like that would that would be the next closest. Oh, this is worse. I can <laughs> having having
3: seen both, uh, I can definitely vouch for the. The horror of Eighth Grade over Hereditary. Uh, so, Hillary, so do you want
0: to run us through basically what Eighth Grade is?
3: Sure. So Eighth Grade is a movie about a girl in her last week of middle school, uh, directed and written, written to, right, mm-hmm. uh, by Bo Barnum, who started out kind of as a YouTube comedian um, and now has transitioned into being a filmmaker. And it's just a really sensitive and authentic and realistic look at kind of teenage life, um, and especially like at teenage life in the current moment when social media is taken over, when everybody's just staring at their phones all the time. I mean, oh my god, that dinner scene that dinner scene with her and her dad where she's just scrolling through her phone and, you know, the camera's on it so you don't really realize what's going on around her and the music is blasting and then her dad interrupts and she's just, like, got her headphones in and her phone out at dinner, like not paying any attention to him. Like, that just Speared me in the heart, and like I don't have children, but now I'm like worried. <laughs> I don't know, Katie. As a mother, were you watching oh this? God. Like, oh my god, is this my
0: future? You mean as a mother of a son? Where I'm like, thank god. It's oh, I mean, that's the boi- true. The boys in this movie like don't come across all that well, but they just seem to be having such an easier time. And that's how I remember eighth grade. Like I remember eighth grade being all kinds of psychological torture, exclusively weighed wa- by other girls, which I think is. But I depicts.
3: went to an all girls school in middle school, and let me tell you, that was. <laughs> Maybe that's, yeah, why this movie just, like, hit me right in the
2: jaw. like That pool party was so harrowing. Just, oh. like, them pulling out more and more and seeing all these kids. Ugh, when she gives
1: her the gift, I think, I, I DM'd Bo Burnham about it, and I was like, that gift scene, how the fuck did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> like, that, like, happened to me. Like, that is, it's so oh, no. acutely done. Um, and the thing about Bo Burnham directing this movie is, you see it, on, when you know, when, when the Sundance lineup came out, I think he's a good comedian. He has a special on Netflix, his most recent one, that's really artful and interesting, uh, while also being funny. But, you know, you still you see, like, okay, this guy wrote and directed this movie about a teenage girl. Like, this is going to be bad. Like, this, you know, like, how could he possibly get it right? And I don't know. I mean, all I can—the only gauge I have for whether he got it right is talking to women and who, you know, lived through that, those years— And that he seems to have done it. He seems to have tapped into something. And I think that's such a nice surprise and such a, you know, I don't know, heartening reminder that like, you know, a filmmaker listening and paying attention and observing and then applying that to something, like someone, you can make something about an experience that isn't your own and still have it feel very real i guess um so I, I hope that that's an indicator that he can do this going forward in future films um but even if it's just like a one-off fluke like i like to think that Lorreen scaferia who's his part life partner who made the meddler which of course is my favorite movie ever made wait um,
2: what i didn't <laughs> know <laughs> yeah, wait that. i did not know this either oh this yeah is, this is brand new information
1: yeah yeah i think they're still dating um yeah she's like she's in the very very end of his comedy special um i like to think that she like had some influence over him but yeah it's just a really unexpectedly sweet movie as harrowing as it as it is
3: yeah it doesn't it isn't judgmental uh, which is really nice it doesn't like you know she's on her phone all the time the movie doesn't kind of make it seem like the movie is on her side uh, which is nice uh, and not something that you would necessarily expect from somebody making a movie somebody who is not a teenager making a movie about teenagers
1: yeah you kind of think it's going to be this welcome to the dollhouse Todd solens like cruelty house of horrors of, yeah exactly like this just litany and parade of awkward and you know miserable situations and it is to some extent
0: (laughs) but it's not sadistic and like you can embrace yourself for it to just torture her constantly like when she goes to high school and she has the girl who she's shadowing and the girl is just like really nice and cute and like enthusiastic you're like oh like the relief that you feel oh yeah you can finally breathe out Oh, my God. Yeah, that girl. I don't know that who the actress is, but she was uh, great.
1: And the reason we're talking about this now in August, even though the movie's been sort of rolling out since July, is that we're recording on a Wednesday and tonight. So sorry, it's already passed by the time this is up. But tonight around the country... A24 is screening the film for free for teenagers because absurdly this movie is rated R by the MPAA um, because I think it's like four uses of fuck and then like there's some sexual content sort of. If there was ever, I mean this year at least, if there was ever a more frustrating example of the MPAA being completely ridiculous about this stuff, it's this movie, which teenagers... The subjects of the film should be able to see it, if they want, with their friends, with their parents, whoever. Um, and so it's really nice that A24 is doing this, but it's sad that it can only be for one night.
2: Right. Well, I've heard the argument, too, that it's like, well, now maybe it'll just seem even cooler to teenagers because it has that R rating. So they'll go out of their way to try to sneak in or try to find a way to well, see it. Well,
3: that or there will be well-meaning parents buying tickets to go right. see the movie with their teenagers. And I don't know. I guess. I guess... There could be like bonding that happens after that, but it would also be very embarrassing if I were fourteen to watch this movie next to my mom. Oh yeah,
0: I would die in my in my seat. I do have to say, like as A twenty four has proven themselves really good at marketing over and over again, like going back to the start of Spring Breakers, and this I think is a really good move to get this movie even more attention. But the idea of uh, positioning yourself against the MPAA is a classic Harvey Weinstein move. Like that that was what the Weinstein Company did all the time. Like with Blue Valentine it was the most r- recent one I can remember. So I guess it's proof that the uh, Weinstein Company legacy lives on in ways that are uh, useful, I guess. We've we've learned a handful of positive things from that. But that was the first thing I thought of when I saw a- what A24 was doing.
1: Yeah. And speaking of, you know, Weinstein and strategy and all that stuff in terms of like marketing film and Oscars and stuff like I'm thinking, you know, the more that I look at all of the press about the movie, the more I look at I mean, granted, it's just like it's a pretty narrow purview in terms of who I follow on Twitter or whatever. But like the support for this film is big and only mounting and only growing. And so I really think that he has a good shot of getting a screenplay nomination. Oh, yeah. You know, because it's original, it's surprising, it's, like, really of the moment. And I just think that is something that that the Academy tends to be the most, like, radical in terms of the big awards in the screenplay category. And I think this could be a a good contender.
3: Yeah, probably Elsie Fisher doesn't have a great shot at... You know, major, major awards, but she's also so
0: good in this movie. And- Independent Spirit Award, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's I think this movie could do really well at the Indie Spirits. And I was thinking about even things like the Barkhouse Film Critics Association. Like, there's a young actor prize uh, there. Like, that, you can see Elsie Fisher really competing there. Like, there's all these smaller awards that I think can build to a screenplay nomination, like you're talking about Richard, where kind of the little movie that could can find a spot there. Elsie Fisher's also in The Hollywood Reporter's a feature on the top 30 actors under 18. So... She's found her spot in the permanent. on her way. I'm sorry, I've crumbled into a pile of bones
3: just hearing you say that.
2: <laughs> I'm curious to see what her next project is and like yeah. what her next acting role is yeah. going to be. Because she felt so real
1: in this. She does, but you see interviews with her, and she is that kid to some extent. But she's also much more self possessed, mm. and like you know, has she's clearly giving a performance. She's going to be okay, Richard. <laughs> I think she's going to be fine. You know, I'm. Well, she's got a good group of friends. But I hope she doesn't fall in with that, you know, uh, those other under-18ers in Hollywood. She should have regular <laughs> friends who keep her grounded.
2: Oh, my God, um, please.
1: Don't invite her to the Young Hollywood Vanity Fair party if anyone in events is listening to Millie Bobby
2: Brown, don't text her. Oh, you guys no. can't be friends stay, right stay now.
1: Stay away from Millie. If Finn Wolfhard sli- <laughs> slides into your DMs.
3: If young <laughs> Sheldon so much
0: as turns your direction. <laughs> oh, do you, with that, I don't want to spoil anything because this movie is still rolling out. But do you guys have a particular moment where you just wanted to climb in your skin and, and never leave?
2: in this movie?
1: I mean, I already mentioned it. It's the it's when she gives the popular girl the the present, and <sighs> it's just devastating. I won't say anything more about it, but, like, hoof, that is so true to life. It's amazing.
2: I mean, on the darkest scale of this movie, like, the car scene is... That was also done really well, and it felt so real, and it was just the most uncomfortable and most terrifying thing to happen in this movie, to me anyway, but...
3: In a, I guess, like, a positive way, the scene that made me, like, just... I can't find the right words for it, but when the the boy that she like kind of goes on a date with, when she goes over to his house, oh God, Gabe, oh
0: Gabe, and
3: he has every single kind of chicken nugget sauce. I was just like, oh, you precious little oh, angel. Oh
0: God, more more cousin Gabe in the
3: world. He was oh, like I'm I didn't know I didn't know what kind of sauce you liked, so I just got them all. <laughs> uh, Gabe's gonna do well, I think. D- Gabe's he's so Gabe's good. gonna yeah. like find himself in college, not in high school. He's gonna have a terrible time in high school, but once he gets to college, once he gets to like Wesleyan or whatever. I think that he is going to really come into his own.
0: You know, and you can see how his face is just like just so close to growing into the shape it's supposed to be, but it's not all there yet. Like that that actor is great.
3: Yeah, that was that was the moment that like I was just like, oh, tender
0: young love. (laughs) this is this is like the awkward scene but so I had heard various people being like I wept through all of 8th grade and I was like watching it being like I'm fine like this is harrowing but like not emotional and then the minute that dad starts talking at the very end and like it's like Call Me By Your Name where everyone's talking about the dad monologue I just like collapse like it's he's it's Josh Hamilton as the actor I don't really think I'd ever seen him in anything but he is just he just has this scene of like parental love and it's this girl who you've wanted to see treated well by somebody and like you know the whole time he's a good dad like you know the whole time that he loves her but that scene is just, it's really well done.
1: And I think that's something that a kind of larger takeaway of the movie for me was that, you know, it is very much about the social media stuff and the sort of horrors of that and, like, the, the sur- surreality from someone from my age, my perspective, who had the internet in high school, sort of, but, like, no, no cell phone until I graduated from high school. Like, yes, it's bizarre that kids are raised on this, that it's second nature to them, that babies are swiping windows because they think that they can change what they're looking at. That's all the scary stuff. But I think that Burnham, who is steeped in this, you know, like Hillary said, he had a YouTube career. That's how he got to be known. He also is like, well, okay, this is the reality of of the world. And there is a way to live within it um, that isn't harrowing and terrifying, that isn't going to like ruin a child, you know. Um, And so I think he easily could have made a very like alarmist movie about this stuff. But instead, he made something that feels very manageable. And whether or not he's right... Maybe we are really doing our children to I don't know bizarre. He's going to be everyone's going to become Ed Westwick and Children of Men, just like playing their game and not and not eating their food pellets. But my hope and I think the film's hope is that the kids will be all right to some extent. Although
3: I will say the one detail now that we're talking about it that stuck out uh, as maybe not quite as real: Do kids still go to the mall? Are there still malls? Aren't all the malls like empty? Like. Deserted hellscapes now.
0: I wondered this too, because that mall does look very thriving, but like they must have filmed it out of, I think it was filmed in upstate New York. Somewhere. You don't think that was a set? <laughs> they built it an was, enormous like, mall. They just
1: borrowed the terminal set that Steven Spielberg built and just like <laughs> retrofitted it a little bit to make it a mall.
0: I mean, you can't, like, you imagine yourself in high school, like, when if you're not someone who's gonna be going to a party at someone's house, like, I hung out at Waffle House a lot because that was a place that we could go and just like sit and not spend very much money, which a, f- a mall food court seems to kind of be a similar thing. I don't know.
1: We hung out in an ice cream shop. We oh really my side. God. So, yeah. Riverdale. Cool.
3: Yeah. Are you Archie? <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. We'd ask Pop Tate for our usual. And, yeah.
4: Give him, a, give him a $5 bill and tell him to keep the change. <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly.
4: This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com cadence. That's butcherbox.com cadence.
0: So coming up next week is what I think is kind of the last major release of the summer. And, uh, you know, it's not Mission Impossible size. It's not an Avengers movie. But uh, Crazy Rich Asians, I think, has been uh, positioned for months and months and months as this, like, late summer kind of Mamma Mia or uh, the help level, like, female-centric hit. Like, I think that's been—we've talked about it before, how, like, that early August slot is really the help slot. Um, and it's been screening forever. A lot of people have been talking about it. It's finally coming out. Uh, I have not managed to see it, so I'm going to hand it over to you guys pretty quickly. But I'm, uh, I'm curious if it's kind of the, like— fun romp that i feel like everyone feels ready for uh, at this point in the year i
1: think so um johanna and i were at the same screening uh this week and the mood in the room felt you know boisterous um you know there was uh, there were some applause lines and things things like that and i think the, the interesting thing about this movie is that it's kind of two uh rarities Kind of dovetailing. One is that you know, in this era of like set it up being this big, you know, big Netflix romantic comedy, and we're, we're bemoaning um, the you know wide release romantic comedy. Here's a studio film that is that and we don't really get a lot of those especially positioned the way this movie has been. And the other is the fact that it's in entirely Asian cast um which is believe as a studio movie has not happened since the Joy Luck Club in the 90s. Yeah, Asian American,
2: Asian, Asian, Asian yeah, American. Yeah, yeah. yeah. both, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and so th- it's interesting that those two things are being combined into one movie and I think it, that gives it a real sense of event. And I yeah, I think it's fun. I I think it like I think it delivers.
3: I think that uh you kind of uh summarized my feelings about it, Richard, uh, before we started recording when we were talking about Crazy Rich Asians and you said, I wish it had been a little crazier. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I think that that is also where I come down. Like, it is a perfectly serviceable movie. Um, it's fun. Like, the clothes are good. The the actors are all beautiful. Um, but the there's not quite as much... I kind of wish that the script had been a little livelier. Uh, like, it's occasionally kind of stilted. I don't know how much of that is because of, like, cult- cultural translation issues that the movie has to try to make sure that everybody watching it can kind of understand where it's coming from. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was good, but I kind of wish that it had been more.
2: Well, I think one thing about that, too, is that there's a lot of stuff that's chopped from the book. So I feel like they were they were working through that, trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to translate like Astrid's whole storyline into like, you know, a handful of scenes, basically. So, so yeah, maybe, it's a soap maybe opera. that was part of it.
3: It's a soap opera. And because of that, everybody has a lot going on. And mm-hmm. in a movie, you really can't get into that as much as if this had been, you know, a 10, 10 episode limited series somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that like I stand by, you know, the cinematic form and I, the encroachment of television is a little bit alarming to me. But, like, I was watching this so and I was like, no, I want more of this. Like, I want these stories mm-hmm. drawn out. And the Astrid storyline that you mentioned, Johanna, like, uh, this actress Gemma Chan is, like, magnetic to watch. And clearly there's more that, the, that just is, can't be fit into the movie. And I found that, like, a little frustrating, I guess. Um, but to your point, Hillary, about it not being crazy enough is that I got the sense, and having not read the book... There's one scene in particular where um, Constance Wu plays this um, Chinese American who is dating this dashing guy from Singapore, and she goes to a, a family wedding with him there and learns that he's this like basically royalty, and and there's this sort of cabal of women surrounding him who really don't like this outsider entering their scene. Anyway, so she goes to a bachelorette party with some people she's just met, and some of the mean girls at this party do something incredibly like cruel and violent in a way. And I was like, "Oh, I, is there more of that in the book? Mm. Because like I thought it might have that kind of darker edge to it, and then that scene happens, and then it moves on, and it's just shocking that like it's just one weird scene that then the movie totally does not." Um deliver on going forward
2: there's there's definitely more of that in the book i feel like that seems just like in particular and like all those girls who are sort of like working to try and get this girl out of their scene there's more of that in the book from what i remember it's mm-hmm. been a few months since i've read it but yeah they it, that is really like condensed in the movie as well they just sort of like move on to the next thing they just give you a taste of what those girls are like and then we move on but i will say i just want to say like for the record that i loved it it was really fun like i left being really happy with what i saw like it just the cast is beautiful it looked so expensive which i really appreciated because like it's called crazy rich asians you have to go insane with it if it had been like low budget, it would have stuck out. <laughs> yeah, like even mid-budget. I was like, okay, I feel like they spent they spent a good amount of money on this. Um, And I loved being introduced to so many actors that I've just never seen before or never seen them get to do much in a role. Can
3: we all sigh heavily about how dreamy <laughs> Henry Golding is? Swooning, swooning. I, I
1: believe I tweeted last night, My takeaway from Crazy Rich Asians was that I would join any cult that Henry Golding started, (laughs) like, willingly, readily. And I think you're right, Johanna, that, like, seeing all these actors who, you know, some of them are, you know, there's one woman who has a cameo who's, like, the daughter of the, you know, the former president of the Philippines who's a big movie star there. Um, And, you know, Michelle Yao obviously is a huge deal in in, in East Asia um, and and the United States. Um, The movie really, like exposes this kind of familiar lie of well we would cast these but, but there just aren't enough actors and you're like this is a whole movie full of good actors who like star to be crass can all speak English and like w- let's okay let's go Like, here and there are all plenty are. more
3: who weren't in the movie
1: absolutely absolutely and I think that anytime we get a reminder of that whether it's you know along issues of race or whatever else disability like okay they are out there and like there shouldn't it shouldn't have to be like one movie every 25 years to prove that
3: yeah one of the Uh, most interesting not to not to focus too much on henry golding uh but one of the one of the interesting backstories uh related to the movie was how like difficult of a time they had apparently casting the male lead um they just like couldn't find the right person and henry golding hadn't acted before they casted him they cast him in this uh he was a tv presenter um and he's of malaysian and british heritage uh and he you know it's like 31 like Cut from marble, like perfect for this role, but it took a lot of searching apparently, and uh, I think a decent amount of the budget of the movie was like dedicated to making sure that they kind of canvassed and like found the perfect lead. Um, but yeah, so I think that that just kind of proves that if effort is taken, then there will be results.
0: Can I ask you guys who um, like who your standouts are? I guess Henry Golding, who we'd never seen before. Like, I'm curious about Aquafina, who had a role in an uh, Ocean's Eight. Who else really uh, popped for you guys?
1: Well, I, I mentioned Gemma Chan, I think she's great. She's kind of like the she's got the B story, let's say. But um she really owns it. She's I mean, she's beautiful and she just has a real like poise about her. Uh, but I also thought, you know, in terms of a lead role, like Constance Wu like does a does a great job and she really carries the movie well and is nuanced and natural and, you know, she's on fresh off the boat, she plays such a kind of up like kind of character character and it was nice to see her kind of be more human scale and and um uh, yeah. So I, I thought she she did a really great job.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of her comedy training kind of came through in the mm-hmm. role too. Like she made the role funnier and like more spontaneous than it probably would have been if another actress, like a dramatic actress, had taken on the role. Um Aquafina was really, really fun in this. I'm glad we got to see so much more of her than we did in Oceans Eight. And I feel like they let her or I guess John Chu just let her do what she wanted because that felt very spontaneous and, and I don't know. It was just fun to see her just be her full comedic self in the show. She like
0: the Zach Galifianakis in The Hangover of Crazy Rich Asians, just kind of running with running with madness.
2: Yeah,
1: but she, but it's nice because she's not like a shitster. Like it's right. her character is well, I mean she's her own person, but like like she's supportive and like kind, and she gave me a kind of Natasha Leone vibe. In oh, this, which, the like, voice. I'm, yeah, which she I was had like that totally New York into. Thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, very much. Um, and I also want to shout out uh, Nico Santos who played Oliver. Um, who is the kind of like caddy cousin uh, oh, mm-hmm. of Nick? Who is kind of he is kind of I guess the shitster in that role, um, and he is on Superstore, which is great. Um, you guys should watch Superstore on NBC. Um, NBC, but, but I, I liked him too. I think that he added like some good flavor to the movie.
0: Are we going to now just panic about it making money uh, with the constant fear that, you know, if they make a movie with an Asian cast and it doesn't do well, they're like, oh, okay, never again. Uh, well, you know, we went through this what, with Ocean's 8 already. That turned out okay. Um, are, are you, are Ghostbusters you guys too. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Well, Ghostbusters was, is kind of the prime example of uh, how it can backfire against people, but it does seem like there's good buzz behind this. Like it, it seems like it will do well. I think it'll be a grower like I can
3: I can see it maybe in its first weekend not breaking any records but I think it's going to be in theaters for a long time Definitely
1: Yeah and I I mean I don't I frankly don't know if I'm the person to assess it because like Johanna and and Hillary and I were talking before we recorded about like there are obvious references in the movie that like I don't get because I'm just not aware of a certain you know cultural figure or whatever, um, there's a scene, a kind of pivotal scene where they play Mahjong and I don't know the rules of Mahjong and so clear, there are like close-up, you know, um, it, you know, insert shots of like the Mahjong tiles and I'm like, that, that, that means something and it doesn't, you know. So I think that audiences in America and, and beyond who have been hungry to see their familiar cultural references, I, I would imagine that they will want to go see that. Um, so then I would imagine it would do, do well, but like I, I don't know how starved they are for it because, uh, I mean, obviously there's a huge Asian cinema industry. And so do we do, do they need the kind of American studio version of that? I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, I do wonder how it's going to play internationally, how it's going to play like in China or in Singapore.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, it still has that splashy like Hollywood appeal, which still does really well overseas. So yeah, I'll be curious to see that as well, like how it turns and out. And
1: it has a, but... a lot of really fun covers of pop songs.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. The soundtrack and the score, it was all just like are covers that, of songs, that end, melodies that, that I knew. Is yeah. that like Chinese version of uh, Yellow? Oh, yeah, that was one. I'm trying to remember what the other ones were, but they were all, like, familiar songs. And I was like, oh, a nice little nod there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So the director is John Chu, who's done, like, two of the step-up films, a Justin Bieber documentary. And so the movie has this kind of up, you know, bright kind of, like, grace. Like, it's kind of an agile movie, like, and and I think that really helps um, elevate what is, there's some kind of, like, clunky, you know, plot, Turns and stuff like that, but but it, the movie has a real energy. I mean, I walked out of it feeling pretty, pretty jazz. So um, I think that like here we are in mid August, um, summer's almost over. I think it's a nice boost of uh, of energy.
3: Apparently, it's tracking for eighteen million dollars plus domestic,
1: which is pretty good on a thirty million dollar budget.
3: Yeah,
2: and good for a comedy. Yeah.
0: Also, according to IMDb, John She was directing the In the Heights movie, which I didn't realize. So. Um that's exciting. And
2: that movie has been saved now from the Weinstein Company. So yeah. yeah, it's it been, it's, it's been rescued
0: from purgatory by John Chu. Uh, we have much to thank you for. that does it for this week's Little Gold Men thank you as always for listening please keep finding us on Apple Podcasts leave us a rating and a review tell people about it join us as award season kicks off in a few short weeks believe it or not Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com where there's lots of pieces about crazy rich Asians to be had writing about 8th grade all kinds of stuff Uh, you can find us all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own I'm at Katie Rich Richard Brylaz and Hillary Hillabuster, and Johanna Johanna Desta This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And here is this week's award for anyone who leaves us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
1: An all-musical episode. Once more with feeling style.
0: It's what the people have been clamoring for.